Hello, friends. Welcome to How to Win Friends and Influenza, the podcast about exciting specialties in medicine. I'm your host, Lily. When I was in high school, I certainly had embarrassing things happen to me, as everyone has. One thing I remember was a guy giving me a dozen roses, getting down on his knees and asking me to be his girlfriend in front of other people. I think I'd spoken to him twice in my life, so it was certainly flattering, but a little bit unnerving. So traumatic, yes, but trauma, not really. Real trauma is being hit by a train or a failed suicide attempt involving a gunshot to the head or a catastrophic motor vehicle accident, or even a fragile older person having a ground level fall at home and sustaining multiple injuries. Last episode, we spoke about palliative care. This is where you're not trying to preserve life anymore and you've accepted that death is inevitable. But the acute trauma team, which is on the other extreme of the spectrum, does the very opposite. In trauma, you're trying to save life despite massive injury. Perhaps that's even to multiple organs and limbs. It's the basis of all the exciting crises in hospital shows and in movies. So let's welcome Dr. Jeremy, who's the director of trauma at a major hospital. He's seen all kinds of exciting and gory things, which we're looking forward to talking about. So welcome, Dr. Jeremy. Yeah, thanks, Lily. All right. So to begin with, um, can we just get an overview of what working in trauma involves? Yeah, so I think um, as a trauma surgeon, basically you've summed it up. It's about management of the injured patient. So that's any sort of physical injury. And in particular, the skills that uh, trauma surgeons have are the uh, skills that are required to manage somebody with major injuries or multiple injuries. Because often a patient that has multiple injuries requires multiple inputs from teams, but you still need somebody to have an overview and make sure that all those injuries are being addressed. At the surgical part of it means that really any sort of injury to the soft tissues, as in the, from the neck downwards to the pelvis, and then also the, the limbs excluding the bones is really the domain of the trauma surgeon. So, right, and what are the most common injuries that you might see across a year? Uh, so I think that um, living in Australia, um, we're pretty lucky. We don't have a whole lot of gunshot wounds mm. um, compared to other countries such as the US, such as uh, South Africa. So most of our injuries are due to blunt trauma, so they're motor vehicle crashes. What we're seeing a lot more now uh, are falls, you know, um, particularly as the population is um, getting older. And so that results in lots of fractured ribs, you know, the motor vehicle crashes and motorcycle crashes result in head injuries, fractures, um, and then obviously there are some significant internal injuries from the high-speed crashes, such as ruptured spleens, damage right. to the liver, bowel injuries, you know, collapsed lung, hemothoraces. So it's a whole range of things that can that can occur, um, you know, in, for the average trauma patient that we look after. Yeah, and it's possible that a person could have um, many injuries to them. And how do you decide which one to deal with first? Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, so I'm sure, as you know, uh, we have a system in trauma uh, because, as you've correctly identified, somebody who has multiple injuries can be quite overwhelming at first uh, examination. So the systematic approach to trauma deals with the most life-threatening injury first and then moves on 
to the next most life-threatening injury and addresses that at, the, uh, at that point. And so therefore, by having this systematic approach uh, for every single patient, then we make sure that we don't miss anything and that, as I've said to in tutorials and the like, to keep the air going in and out and the blood going round and round. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that people have the impression that trauma must be chaos and uh, it's crazy, you know, you're just trying to stop the bleeding, that's all you're trying to do, but actually there's a lot of structure behind it. So it can be summed into that uh, simple principle of air and blood are the two things you care about. But it's also very comforting, so I suppose if someone to be, uh, were to be a patient in the trauma unit, they know that there is a reason behind the supposed madness. So that's a really good thing. Um, how did you fall into trauma? How did you go from being a student to where you are now? Yeah. So that's a really interesting question that uh, I've been asked a lot. Um, and I don't know how it kind of, how the answer fits into this current environment of, you know, approaches and philosophies to teaching, but I'll tell you anyway, um, because I think I was, because I was the second year of the graduate medical program at Sydney University. Right. So this whole PBL thing was quite new and I still remember the case. It was musculoskeletal block, so that was block two at that time. First case, Pete Costas, I think his name is, <laughs> right. the motorcyclist with fractured femur. Right, I'm just gonna interrupt for a second. Yeah. For any listeners who don't know what PBLs are, so it stands for problem-based learning. It's basically a team of students where you get a hypothetical case and you work through it. But uh, back to the case. Yeah, and so that was the case of the week and in the clinical tutorials at the hospital. Remember, this is a first year medical student. Mm. Hospitals are all new. We're just getting used to the idea of uh, talking to patients and what we need to do. And I, my tutor was, uh, very experienced professor of vascular surgery, a South African, so he's very stern, uh, very serious man. <laughs> I, I remember him very fondly, actually. Um, and he said, Jeremy, right, today, I'm gonna be this trauma patient, you know, like we're talking about. I've been in a car crash, and I want you to take a history f from me. I thought, okay, sure, I know. I've read Tally and O'Connor. <laughs> And so the professor is lying there in the tutorial room on the bed. And I walked up to him and I said, as I would as a first year medical student, walked up and said, oh, hello, my name is Jeremy. Um, can you tell me what is troubling you today? <laughs> and he then proceeded to play the role of an intoxicated, you know, belligerent motorcyclist that was not cooperative in the slightest. And there I was trying to stick to my presenting complaint, history of the presenting complaint, past medical history, and getting absolutely nowhere. And then ultimately he stopped talking. <laughs> no. And I said, oh. And he said, Jeremy, you have just managed to kill your first patient. And I went, uh, and he said, not by commission, you haven't actively done anything, but it's omission because mm. the way that you approach it is not in the structured process of how we assess a trauma patient. And I went, huh. And so after that tutorial, I went, I never want that to happen again. <laughs> so I went and started reading up all about trauma. And you know, there were these great websites. There was a new website called trauma.org that was set up by who's now the lead trauma surgeon in London. And um, the more that I read, the more that I found it really interesting. Um, just the 
managing injuries, physical injury to the body. And it just kind of progressed from there. So the more that I read, the more that I got interested, the more that I got interested, the more that I wanted to read about it, then finding out more and more things and then working out that, yeah, actually this is something that I want to do. So you take up opportunities you know, as you're a student to get involved. So I started, you know, getting involved in some research and, you know, wrote a paper about thoracolumbar injuries and then organised my elective to go to South Africa. And then at each stage, everyone's going, yeah, you'll grow out of that. Yeah, you won't want to do trauma. <laughs> and you never did. <laughs> and I never did. You know, it just progressed through from there. So it really was. It's just one of those things that was stimulated um, by that scenario that, you know, when, as soon as I started reading, I thought, this is amazing. This is something that I want to do. Yeah, I so, think that's a really fantastic yeah. story about uh, finding what you like. Because I feel in medicine, there are two ways to discover what specialty or path you want to do. One is to immerse yourself more and more in something you find fascinating that you never grow out of. And you find it that way. And the other way is to try a lot of things and rule out what you don't like. So you can either rule in or rule out. Now, hypothetically, if you weren't doing trauma, what do you think you would be doing? <clears throat> yeah, I've thought about that as well. I think that... Um I always would want to do trauma. Um, I think sometimes, I think that if I had my choice again, maybe I would pick um, thoracic surgery mm. instead of general surgery, although I'm very happy at doing general surgery, but that was one option. I think that if you were to really ask me about if I wasn't a surgeon, what right. I would do, I actually think infectious diseases is something that I would find really interesting because I think oh, that that's yeah. fascinating, like as in... Uh, about uh, microorganisms and yeah. finding ways to, because they're you know they're supposed to be simple organisms, but they're actually really clever. And the fact that you know they can still cause a significant problem to human beings, mm. um, I think any way that you can combat that is it would be an amazing field. So that's what I think I would if you know if I had to be a physician. <laughs> terrible. If I had to be, I would. I think I would have picked infectious diseases. So. Right. What's interesting to me is you could argue that infectious diseases and trauma are both somewhat uh, generalist uh, fields because you see a lot of different varieties. It's not just all about the gut and nothing else. So do you think having an appreciation of variety is an important feature in trauma or not? Yeah, you have to. You, uh, it's a really good statement about the general nature of trauma. So trauma is something what we call a horizontal specialty so I'm a surgeon but a trauma surgeon needs to understand more than just how to do an abdominal operation so when I say a horizontal specialty most specialties you get more and more expertise in a smaller and smaller area yeah so you can become like the left great toe surgeon but with trauma you have to be aware of all the injuries and you don't necessarily need to know how to f technically correct that in terms of the nuts and bolts of doing a craniectomy say for example to evacuate a subdural hematoma but you need to know that this patient who has a subdural hematoma on their CT scan is very likely to require one and therefore you need to facilitate all the management in the early stage to prevent secondary brain injury and involve the neurosurgeons very early for their opinion regarding the actual technical aspect um, and ongoing management. So you've got to kind of know all of the injuries and their patterns and their outcomes 
and what to do with them um, in, in trauma. So it is a very general thing, which is quite different to a lot of other specialties. Yeah, one of my favorite quotes about that, I think it comes from uh, Mark Chrislip. So he's actually an infectious diseases guy from uh, the US. He's got his own podcast as well, A Gobbit of Pus, very good. Um, his quote is something like, uh, you can either know more and more uh, about nothing or you can know increasingly nothing about everything. So <laughs> I suppose trauma uh, fits into the second where you kind of know um, a bit about everything. Now, uh, I imagine because you have to know so much, it's not really possible for one person to actually know everything. So there must be a strong teamwork uh, capacity in it. Um, what is it like working with other people in trauma? Yeah, look, um, trauma, you said at the very beginning, looks chaotic and yeah. crazy, and it is, but it's an organized chaos. Um, the reason why is that uh, a sick trauma patient requires all the resources that we have. You know, it's very challenging for a single doctor, single nurse to manage like a multiply injured, bleeding to death patient. So we have trauma resuscitation teams that are made up of uh, you know, constituents from anesthetics, ICU, surgery, emergency. You know, we have radiographers, we have nurses, we have the blood bank, we have everyone on board. And um, the, the reason is, is that you need all of those resources to be able to intervene for those life-threatening injuries quickly. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a flash team, you know, like the flash mob. You don't actually train with that same right. team every day. You've got any combination of those yeah. specialties and who actually is coming from that specialty at any particular time. So the key thing about being a trauma specialist is that you have to know how to coordinate all of that um, and that's just in the beginning because then when you go to the operating room it's a whole other team again you've got your surgical team you have the anesthetic team and you still have to maintain um, overall kind of oversight and uh, you know management of the patient so you work with a team there and then when you look at the overall management beyond the initial resuscitation and the initial hemorrhage control, you've got this patient that will need orthopedic input, neurosurgical input, plastics input, rehab input, geriatrics input. So you work with a whole lot of different specialties. And it's not about handing, handing it on necessarily, particularly when somebody's got multiple injuries, it's about coordinating all of those and making sure that all the patient's needs are addressed. So it's, you know, if you're looking for something that you can work with lots and lots of different people, then trauma is definitely the sort of specialty for that. Yeah. So again, that raises a really interesting point because when we talk about taking histories from patients, we always say you have to build rapport. You, you have to get the patient to trust and to like you to an extent because that will improve their compliance and how well you can take the history from them. So uh, this picture of trauma actually shows that you don't have to specifically know or like people to work well with them. How do you, um, how do you ensure that you do have good cooperation with someone you've never met before? Yeah, so we um, set up structures and training so to help facilitate that because it is really challenging. Working with someone that you don't know for the first time in a critical situation is very difficult. And so we provide training such as trauma team training where we actually 
um, focus a lot on the non-technical skills of how to work in a team. Sounds odd because, you know, to most people you go, what do you mean, like how to work in a team? There actually, there are structures and processes that can help facilitate that communication so that it's effective. It doesn't matter that we've never worked together in that capacity. Because everyone has their role and everyone understands what the overall aim is and the priorities, then everyone's on the same page and therefore you can work together as a team. Yeah, and I guess there are basic things that sometimes people <coughs> overlook. Like in one of um, Atulka Wande's books, he actually says teams work better when people know each other's names, uh, which is so true because you have to ever go to a situation where people just aren't introducing themselves. It doesn't feel as personal. So even these small tricks that are often overlooked, um, they can make a, a big difference as well. But I'm sure in your training, you also have things like simulation. Would that be correct? Yeah, so simulation plays a big part for our trauma team training where we go through all those concepts um, about uh, effective communication between the team, so things such as closed-loop communication. Mm. One of the things that we do find, I think you touched on, it's like when you you throw an order out into the ether. So you say, can we have some morphine? It's just thrown out there. <laughs> no one knows who's it directed yeah. to. No one knows whether it's actually who's going to get it, whether it's being given. So we try and train, train our team members into a structure where it's directed and then there's feedback given and yep. confirmation of that. So it's actually, when you break it all down, it's something that should be intuitive. We actually provide, just like any other skill, a structure that people can practice. Yeah, because I've also heard that when people get in situations of crisis, they don't default to the shining unicorn behavior. They def default to what they practice and what they know. So that's why simulation is so vital. Mm -hmm. Now, what kind of personality do you think works well with trauma? We've established that they've got to have strong communication and they probably love the generalist aspect of medicine. What else? Would they have to be strong-headed or opinionated or would they have to be very decisive? Yeah, you've got to be decisive. Okay. So when we talk about uh, trauma, I guess to me it's a little bit like uh, anesthesia. For the bulk of the time it's fairly straightforward and you don't have uh, really severely injured patients but when you get those severely injured patients you have to act quickly you have to make the diagnosis quickly intervene quickly um, you don't have time to go and do a midline search for the best outcome you have to make a decision and we talk about in trauma critical decision nodes so that's like coming to a fork in the road in the decision-making pathway and you can only go right or left and if you make the wrong choice patient suffers harm if you make the right choice patient lives so you've got to be able to make those decisions and so if you're the type of person that likes that and if you're the, you're the type of person that thinks um, in an algorithmic fashion so where you do come to a in a critical decision node where you can choose A, B, or sometimes C, you have to commit to it for whatever reason based on the information that you have. If you are the more intuitive kind of, um, you know, esoteric, <laughs> you know, gestalt type thinking physician, trauma may not be the best kind, especially because you need to make decisions very quickly. And how do you know that you've made the right decision? Patient lives. Okay. <laughs> so we, we actually try very hard um, here to 
standardizer pathways. So we have a set of um, trauma pathways that's available on our app, uh, which we encourage all of our um, doctors to use and nurses uh, so that there's a standard way. It's not saying that that's the only way in the world to do it, but for here, we know that if you standardize the approach to the patient, you'll minimize errors. And if you minimize errors, you minimize complications and you get better outcomes. So that's the kind of way that we um, put it out here. Yeah. Now, I imagine because of what we've just <coughs> talked about, there's probably a high level of stress at times in trauma. Uh, do people ever leave trauma and go elsewhere? Uh, I think so. Is I it not a common thing, though? Or? Yeah, look, I guess... Um, Trauma is one of those things where the people that actually end up in trauma um, are the ones that have chosen yeah. that. So, you know, there, there are probably lots of people who along the way have started out maybe wanting to do trauma. Yeah. Um, but in terms of actually uh, staying in a career in it, um, you know, not everyone you know, chooses that that path. I think that the important thing to remember is that I'm talking from a, from the perspective of working as a trauma surgeon in a major trauma hospital. Trauma skills are pretty important for uh, a wide range of doctors in a whole range of settings. So as you can imagine, you know, going from the rural general practitioner in a small hospital they need to have the trauma skills to manage a patient that comes in. You know, they need to be able to address as much as they can while assistance is arriving. You know, the general surgeon in a metropolitan hospital has to have the trauma skills to be able to manage that patient. So I think that um, it's, again, one of those general skills that everyone should be familiar with um, but obviously as a career you know you're focused on you know specific you know like any other specialist career you're focused on improvement in both the clinical management as well as prevention and systems and a whole lot of things education research and the like yeah so i know for yourself you come from a general <coughs> surgery background what are the other backgrounds that people might come from so you mentioned rural gp yeah. are there any other common training programs people might go through so specifically for trauma there's generic uh, skills courses that we teach such as the atls which is the advanced trauma life support or emst as it's called in australia um, the early management of severe trauma that's run by the college of surgeons and that's open to surgical trainees anesthetic trainees emergency trainees gp trainees icu trainees so that provides the i guess it's like the the baseline education for safe trauma management also provides a common language um, but specifically when you talk about a career in trauma where it's going to be a major focus i mean it's mainly the acute specialties so when i call the acute Specialties, what I mean by that is it's emergency medicine, anaesthetics, intensive care, and surgery. So, and within that, you can think within surgery, neurosurgeons are involved in trauma, orthopedic surgeons are involved in trauma, cardiothoracic surgeons are involved in trauma, general surgeons are involved in trauma. So, everybody actually has their, you know, their aspect to it. I guess 
going back to what I said originally about my description of a trauma surgeon, what I'm talking about is the model of where there's a surgeon that is has or that has overview of the entire management of the patient. So it doesn't matter what subspecialty you're from, as long as you're aware of how that patient should be managed overall, then the technical aspects of it you can obviously do as part of your, you know, subspecialty training. So, you know, as a general surgeon, I will operate, you know, for injuries in the neck, soft tissue of the neck, in the chest if need be, the abdomen, pelvis, Right. and said the the limbs you know excluding the bones and the like so i think that's the that's the sort of uh, way to approach it i guess here we have uh, a fairly unique position at this hospital where our trauma service is made up of trauma specialists and we have representatives from surgery anesthesia icu and emergency that look after the patient through their entire stay so i'll just repeat that we have emergency physicians that actually look after the patient as a trauma specialist through their entire stay. So they step foot outside the emergency <laughs> department uh, and do that. So that's a fairly unique model that we have yeah. here. So I think that in, in the future, particularly in Australia, that's something that's a pathway that we're working on for non-surgical specialists yep. to become trauma specialists. Yeah, so that sounds great. All roads lead to trauma. There's yeah. a lot of ways that you can get there. And it is uh, such an important um, specialty, really, because it is acutely preserving life. Now, um, I do want to ask you a difficult question, which is uh, what are the bad aspects of trauma? Or what should people be aware of before they step foot in it? Yeah. Uh, so I think that like every specialty, there's the fun stuff, but that's not how you should select your specialty. Yeah you've got to look at what the day-to-day stuff is, right? And to be perfectly honest, and this is a trend that is reflected worldwide, particularly as a surgeon, there's less and less operative intervention required for trauma now. So we can manage a lot of solid organ injuries non-operatively. We know that patients are gonna repair their injuries and survive without intervention. We are seeing more and more endovascular techniques. So angiography is saving a lot of patients from surgery. Um, So therefore we know that looking after trauma patients, the day-to-day is actually, you know, the patients that have multiple rib fractures along with their femur fracture that, you know, as a trauma specialist, you may not actually physically operate, but you still got to look after that patient. Um, So I think that's probably the biggest thing that people have to consider, that you will spend a lot of time, and as we've got an ageing population, we're seeing more and more elderly patients coming in from minor mechanisms of injury, but they have multiple injuries, and they take a long time to get back to their previous level of function. So you have to keep that in mind, I think. I think that you have to be... um, aware of the fact that a lot of the acute, severely injured patients don't come in between nine and five, Monday to Friday. We can track that the busiest time of the week usually starts from about Thursday, and goes through to Sunday, and the busiest time is between roughly about three to four o'clock in the afternoon to about midnight. 
Do you know why that is? Uh, just that's the patterns of mm. when injuries occur. So yeah. if you think about it, Fridays and Saturdays when people have uh, they've finished work and, you know, unfortunately with trauma, a large number of the incidents that occur are related to alcohol use. Yep. Um, and obviously that tends to happen on Friday, Saturdays. We have um, a lot more other activities that happen on the weekend, such as, you know, racing, you know, recreational racing. Um, we know that when the weather is good, people get out more. Yeah. So therefore more injuries occur. And certain holiday seasons, I would assume. Yeah. So again, you know, when there's a large movement of people in any yeah. particular area, you tend to have more uh, incidents that, that, that occur. So um, trauma is also not the sort of thing that if you have to intervene that you can go, let's wait till the morning. <laughs> so if it, you know, if somebody comes in with a stab wound at two o'clock in the morning, you've got to be there, you know, to sort that out, you know, maybe operate. You can't wait till the morning. Yeah. So, so, you know, it's uh, overall you've got to consider the somewhat antisocial hours <laughs> of trauma. So they're not regular at all? You get called in? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So when you, when you are doing call, like on call for yeah. trauma, yeah, I mean, there are patients that sometimes you just have to start getting in the yeah. car and coming into the hospital um, if it sounds like they're bleeding or need critical intervention. And as I said, most of the time doesn't really happen in... Uh, business hours. What if you're not on call? What are the hours like then? <clears throat> uh, so it depends on the structure of, of you know, where you're working. I think as a pure trauma specialist, um, it's pretty uncommon in Australia. I think that volume-wise, you would there's not very many people that do that uh, as a full-time thing. So, for example, you know, I do an elective surgical practice in breast cancer, sort of oncoplastic surgery. So I fill my time when I'm not in doing trauma with my elective surgery and, you know, obviously teaching and education, research and all the other administrative stuff. And being on podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but, uh, look, I think that, that there are options, um, particularly in, in Australia, to have, you know, do trauma as a major part of your um, work and then, you know, you can pick other avenues to fill in your other time. Um, to manage that. I, I think it's unhealthy to be doing trauma all the time. Right. Have you ever seen something that you <coughs> wish you could unsee? Do you ever have those moments? Um, I think that the most challenging part, uh, which for me personally, uh, is um, kids who are injured. Um, I'm lucky because the children's hospital is right next door and so therefore I don't actually have to manage um, injured children but in my training and overseas when I was working um, some of the hardest things to manage were like kids who were you know um, yeah had severe injuries that's that's the hardest thing I think yeah how much trauma do you think is preventable? <coughs> when I say preventable, let's say if you're walking on the street and a piano falls on you, let's say that's out of your control, but I suppose things like motor vehicle accidents, how much of it is avoidable? Great question. You just said that it's an accident, right? So many of us in trauma don't like to refer to road traffic 
incidents as accidents. You know, you hear it around this person was in motor vehicle accident, motorbike accident. So an accident suggests that it was an act of God, like a piano falling mm. out of the sky. Yeah. Right? To be honest with you, the majority of uh, motor vehicle crashes, motorcycle crashes, uh, things of the sort, are actually preventable or potentially preventable. Yeah. Like they have... Um, someone's either intoxicated, driving too fast, not wearing a seatbelt, texting on their phone, you know, distracted in some way. Uh, And I think that the biggest thing is is that if we call them accidents, then you take the responsibility of uh, prevention out of, you know, um, the community's hands. You know, oh, it was terrible. They were in a terrible accident. That suggests that there was nothing that could be done. Yeah. All right. Whereas actually there's a lot that can be done. As I said, if we talk about you know, all those interventions about reducing drink driving, mandatory seatbelt laws, mandatory helmet laws for motorcyclists, all those things are actually prevention strategies to reduce a road toll. So I would say the majority of incidents that we see are um, preventable in one form or another, and it's only a small number that are actually um, you know, what I would term an accident. Yeah, and has working in trauma affected any of your own behaviour? Does it make you drive like, I don't know, like a really conservative old person on the road? Look, I tell you, no, to be honest, it does. It makes you um, a bit more uh, risk averse, like as in it's, um, there are certain things, like I won't ride a motorcycle because I see too many people, what happens when you do get on a motorcycle? And that was your very first PBL, so. Yeah, so, you know, it's... um, Definitely, there are there are things that you would go. I mean, and you know, another current topical aspect is that we see a lot of uh, men in their fifties and sixties who are falling off roofs, doing you know, just maintenance tasks. Yeah. So you never fix a roof. <laughs> so I would pay someone to yeah. do it. Yeah. Right. And I encourage my parents to pay someone to do yeah. it, not my father to get up on the roof and clear the gutters. So it's only because I've seen what happens. So, yeah. you know, those are the sorts of things that, you know, we can unfortunately see and, you know, and how it changes my own behaviour. Yeah. Well, I think we've covered a lot in this interview. It's been really great to hear all about trauma. Um, we've heard about some of the things that people think should think about and we've heard about some of the ways that it could be prevented. So let's end on a really happy, upbeat note. What are the best things about trauma? Why, why are people drawn to it? Uh, I think that trauma is one of those specialties that is, it looks exciting, you know, and it is exciting, like at times, like, I think that it is, if it, if you like quick decision making, you know, interventions that can make a difference straight away, then trauma definitely fills that sort of, um, fill, you know, it, it will provide all of those things. Um, I think that, you know, that's why it does seem attractive to a lot of medical students and interns and nurses and the like, you know, because they do see it's exciting and it does seem like that organized chaos when you first go to a recess, but you can have a patient that is dying in front of your eyes who then gets better. Um, so I think it's it's pretty good, and the I guess the other thing about trauma, which is great, is that you have to keep in mind that 
that patient has come in because they've had some sort of physical force applied to the body and if you can correct the damage that's been yeah. done they're fine otherwise so a lot of these patients i mean i've said you know we, we get elderly patients but the young ones that are injured that's the only reason why they're in hospital like they don't have a whole list of comorbidities and you know it's not that very challenging situation of cancer or malignancy that you know um you know that's always looming over anyone who's ever had cancer you know this is something that can be fixed and they can get back to their normal life um so it's kind of pretty satisfying uh, when you see a patient that was on the brink of death that leaves hospital yeah, I you think know, that's fantastic. And, yeah. It's a very practical mm. specialty, very spra- uh, practical area. You can really see the difference that you can make, which is probably why a lot of people go into medicine in the first place. Mm. So thank you so much, Dr. Jeremy. Yeah, It's no been problem. fantastic. Yeah, yeah, great. No, thanks for having me along. Hopefully thank that was you. useful. Yeah, Good. and uh, we'll see you listeners in the next episode. Bye.